And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. While it is the dead of the offseason in college football, there have been some interesting stories lately to talk about, and it seems like one man has been reporting quite a few of them, and that is Dennis Dodd, our friend at CBS Sports. We wanted to bring on Dennis now to talk about some of the scoops that he's broken recently and some other issues in college football. Pleased to be joined now by our friend Dennis Dodd at CBS Sports, who has been very busy this offseason, breaking one story after another, and we want to talk about a few of those as well as some some items in the news this week. Dennis, how's it going, first of all? It's going great. Just uh, trying to trying to stay busy during the offseason, as we all are, and college sports never, never fails to deliver, it seems. Yeah, this is a time of year where I generally struggle to come up with story ideas, but you've been cranking them out, and one that has drawn a lot of interest, I fielded a question about it in my mailbag, is attendance in college football. You reported, I think last week, that this was the biggest year-over-year drop in attendance across FBS in 34 years. And everybody keeps asking, why? Do we have, do we have a great answer for that? I think uh, I've been asked that a bunch of times since then, and I, I just think it's it's a bunch of things. I, it, you can't nail it down. I a, a, a topic I really didn't get into in the story is student attendance. That frightens everybody, every AD in the country, how to retain those those students who are increasingly distracted in by, by their phones. If your stadium isn't wired or isn't wired with enough bandwidth, it's it's really easy for them not to go to games. And if you lose the, if you lose them, you lose that legacy giving uh, the way a bunch of ADs put it in 10 or 20 years when you go to hit them up for money because they don't have those memories from old state U on Saturday because they were at a tailgate or a campus bar or in their dorm room, you know, checking their phone. And it's not only a student thing, it's, it's fans in general. I had a, a source in the story say we're, we're undergoing a societal shift on how people consume these games. And I, I, I that probably narrows it down as, as much as anything. Guys, I want to throw three theories out at you. You tell me which one you like, which one you mm-hmm. you believe in the most, and which one you're like, eh, this is probably a lesser part. And I think it's, I, I, to me, the three things that jump out the most are one, and I've heard this from people, is the cost of games and the cost of tickets. Mm-hmm. Two, the 
moving TV times, which you'll hear a lot on the West Coast about when kickoffs are, it's maybe inconvenient for fans to go. And then three, uh, there's so many games on TV. The TV experience is much more uh, easy when people don't want to deal with a traffic parking. Just it's not as comfortable to sitting around other people maybe and, and dealing with some other stadium you know, crowd issues that maybe you just don't want to put up with and people are just more comfortable in their own spaces and the TV experience. Now, that I don't know if that's relevant or, or reflected in TV ratings, which... You know, obviously the NFL story, even the NASCAR story and other sports has been on the decline of, of late. So which of those three do you think is most valid and which of those three do you think is kind of a red herring? Well, some of the ones you mentioned, Bruce, I feel like, I mean, shifting TV times has been um, something that's been a part of college football for as long as I can remember. Maybe it's gotten a little more extreme with the Pac-12. I don't know. I, uh, the one that you mentioned that I, I think you can't deny, cost of tickets, uh, you know, in many cases to get season tickets, you have to make a huge donation in the first place just for the right to buy those season tickets. And I think that some schools I've seen have started to do like more advanced pricing where it costs more or less depending on the, you know, how important the game is. But a lot of people don't do that. And so you're still paying the same for, you know, the early season Sunbelt game as you are for your, you know, big rivalry game, the big Alabama-LSU game or something like that later in the season. Yeah, I it, all three of those things hit my Twitter feed from from people on the ground when that story came out. And, and they, you know, they're from fans. It was very organic and, and a lot of stuff I hadn't thought of. I did, you know, I didn't really think of the ticket price, but that's got to be included in this discussion. But I would I would say that number 3 is kind of weaves everything together because it weaves together the technology aspect that, you know, we're, we're changing the way we consume games. Every game's on TV. That accounts for really being tempted to stay in that Barker lounger with your remote in your hand and a, and a beer um, and not have to fight traffic and watch every game there is, uh, you know, possibly you can on your phone, your tablet, your TV, you know, uh, that that is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, I, I just speaking from the Big Twelve's perspective, the league is twenty years old, and it took a while for that league to have all their games on TV. Um, you know, even now, I remember doing a a bit or a note or something about Conference USA. I think only uh, I'm sorry, Florida Atlantic only five of their games. Uh, were available anywhere last season, ESPN3, streaming, whatever. And that shocked me. I, I really thought every game everywhere was on TV. But, but Bruce, I'll go with num- door number three because that kind of weaves everything together. Yeah, I, I, I tend to lean to, lean more, more towards that. I also wonder, you know, as, as we get into this of just, you know, the games are longer, too. It's a more of a commitment in time. Mm-hmm. And people look, I'm going to spend you know, whatever, six hours of my day, you know, four hours for the game. And then, you know, depending on where you live, but just the logistics of getting in and out of stadiums is not, not that easy as well. Let me throw out one other, maybe if this is a le- this is a harder one to pin down, but just to consider with the ever increasing emphasis on the playoff and more and more teams, maybe feeling teams, yep. fan bases feeling like they're, 
you know, they've given up on the season earlier than they would have before? Because I noticed in your story, Dennis, that the SEC had one of the biggest drops, if not the biggest drop. The, the biggest wise. among, yeah, the biggest among Power Five, yeah. So if, if you're a, yeah. if you're a fan of um, any number of those schools that fashion themselves national title contenders, but were out of it by week six, even if they were still in line for a decent bowl game, maybe fans start tuning out now. Yeah, no, I I get that. I don't know if I would agree with I, that. Just in in the way this the season played out. I mean, because Auburn kept up, came back in as a viable national title contender, whereas you know I don't know if I see those other you know those other schools. You know, you kind of know if you're if you're a, a you know a, th- a two or three loss team by Halloween, you know you're not in the BCS run anyway. So I'm not sure if I if I agree to that angle as much. And, yeah. and those tickets are largely bought before the season, and they're counted whether you at that point whether you show up or not. Season tickets, at least. Um, I guess not the student tickets. But go ahead. No, yeah, I mean, you may be right. It may be harder to track down. I just feel like, in general, the way the sport has shifted, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, you still thought you were having a pretty great season and just trying to get to a BCS Bowl. I mean, there are schools now, especially in that conference, that it's playoff or bust. Yeah, here's here's another one that I thought of that I can't – even though the number didn't set a record, I think there were 22 or 23 coaching changes – just the, the the impactful jobs that were open. There are some pretty big time schools that had open jobs this year. And I, I go to the SEC and look at. Okay, I told you guys that they they led Power Five. They had the, the biggest attendance decline among Power Five schools overall. Twenty four hundred folks per game. Well, the the number one school. What do all these schools have in common? The number one school in attendance decline was Ole Miss among the leaders in the country. Arkansas was second. And Tennessee was third, and Texas A&M was fourth. What do all those schools have in common? Coaches, coaching changes either coaches on the hot seat going right. into the season, or or basically, right. you know, in the case of Ole Miss, you had a season that didn't have much riding on it. Well, they couldn't go to a bowl, and uncertainty in the coaching position. So that you know, and and, and some of that just becomes apathy. Certainly at A&M. At Arkansas, where they just cratered in uh, in Brett Bielma's last year, and in Ole Miss, where they had they had nothing to play for, um, you know, because of NCA sanctions. So that maybe, I don't know, maybe that spiked it somewhat. I don't know. Stu, as our listeners know, neither one of us, especially me, are great sleepers. But in recent weeks, I have to say that has been improved because we have had a great addition to the Audible. Quite honestly, one of our our best sponsors has been Lisa. And why don't you tell our audience how they can improve their quality of life and get better sleep? For sure. I've learned a lot more about mattresses recently. And Lisa, what makes them so different is that the mattress is 100% American-made and delivered, compressed in a box to your door. It's thoughtfully crafted with high-quality materials to create what Lisa calls their universal adaptive feel and its three foam layers provide support, pressure relief, and cooling that adapts to all body shapes, sizes, and sleeping styles. You're not going to get a better deal than this. Go to lisa.com slash audible. Use promo code audible and you get $100 off the Lisa mattress of your choice. It's a heck of a deal. 
And of course, you avoid the awkward process. And I know I've done this before where you go to a store and try out mattresses and avoid awkward interactions with pushy salesmen. Instead, just go to the website, lisa.com slash audible to get $100 off mattress of your choosing. Again, that's lisa.com slash audible. Dennis, you know, it's good that you brought up Old Miss. One of the other stories that got a lot of attention that you've done in the last couple of weeks was related to Ole Miss transfers in the wake of their, their postseason ban. Arguably one of the most uh, pivotal transfers will be Shea Patterson, their really talented quarterback. He is at Michigan. We don't know at this point whether he is going to be eligible or not. Give us, you had some very interesting documentation and text messages that were in your story that would probably strengthen the case of Shea Patterson and the other five Ole Miss transfers trying to get eligible immediately. What do you think is going to happen there? Boy, that's, that's the million dollar question. I've been asked that on radio shows and whatnot. And while I agree that in its six players are all represented by, by Tom Mars, he was used to nuts attorney and we know how that turned out with Hugh Freeze, but 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 he, you know, I, I don't think he holds any particular such power or influence over the NCAA because I've learned over the years, it's just unwise to predict any of these transfer waiver appeals cases. Their 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 individual cases look great. Um, they're basically saying, "You freeze lied to us. We didn't know it was this bad. We never would have come or stayed had we known." And here's the proof, which in, in that story, there is some of that. Um, you mentioned text messages. And so on its face, it, it looks like a slam dunk case for a guy like Shea Patterson to be, to be eligible right away. But again, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen weaker appeals get approved, and I've seen stronger cases get turned down. I, I don't know how they make the sausage there in Indianapolis. So I would, I would just caution people to... You know, to, oh, we're going to have Shea Patterson in the lineup. You know, I, I think so, but I don't know that. It's uh, – can we think of a comparable situation like that? I mean, I, first of all, I'm confused because I thought the NCAA was getting in the business of getting away from these waivers and, and you know, the, the hardship waivers and whatnot. Um, yeah. Apparently that's – this is – like, is this considered a hardship waiver or is this some other kind of waiver? This is no the the way they've written these appeals. It's not a hardship waiver. It's not grandma being sick and I have to get home and be close to the family. It's it's not that at all. It's it's just what I described that they they think they were misled. Uh, you know, we know the background of that case, the original notice of allegations where Hugh Freeze uh, and staff alleged. I don't even know if it's allegedly told people that oh, it's Houston nut. It doesn't include football. Well. It in fact did. The majority of it was football, and we know what happened to the to the program. But that, that let me ask case. let me ask you guys this though, because as we're talking yeah. about, we have a notion of innocent until proven guilty in in the society. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. Ole Miss wasn't wasn't guilty because obviously they haven't found that. But does the nature of like basically if this happens and the NCA denies these players, then right. You know, is there a billboard going out to? First of all, if I am a a uh, a rival coach of anybody considering a school that is under investigation, or there's even a hint of investigation, that I'm going to say you should not go there because you will not be able to get out because it's basically where there's smoke, there's fire. 
I mean, just because they're under investigation doesn't mean there's going to be a postseason bowl ban attached to it. Like, right. how are they now, supposed that's to right. know that part of it? Right, that's right. I mean, and that's a good point. And what I think what you're saying, part of this, is does this open some sort of Pandora's box? Either way, if the end, how the NCAA rules on it, and they, uh, I, you know, from history, tell us each case is different. Don't assume anything. You know, there are different waiver appeals. Uh, I think it's legislative services. People come in and out of that sphere inside these things. So I think Ole Miss stands on its own as far as negative recruiting. Well, that's going to happen. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there, there's no honor among thieves, I think. Well, speaking of transfers, you also reported recently about the Big 12's proposal. And, and obviously there's a lot of larger discussion in the NCAA right now about bigger changes to the transfer policy. We know they're not going to – the only one we know that's not going to happen is everybody's immediately eligible to transfer, not yeah. you know, not sit out a year. But this is a pretty major free proposal. Yeah. 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 But this would be free agency if your coach leaves. Uh, this would allow players to, tra- if the coach leaves or gets fired, that the, the um, players could transfer somewhere without sitting out a year, other than they can't follow their coach to his new school. Where is right. this in the process? How realistic do we think it is that it would pass? Well, last, last week the NCAA put out a release from the transfer working group that this is kind of where their heads are at. You know, they didn't get pinned down on anything, but the transfer waiver group, which is going to make recommendations to the council. Uh, and then we'll have some sort of legislative change. I think in June, I think that much is assured. It's a question of then when is it implemented, you know, in time for 18 football or, or 19 football, but they are thinking in general terms about the, the, they were very careful to use the language in the release of like, if a coach departs, they didn't say fired. They didn't say left on his own. They didn't say run over by a car. Um, you know, that, that kids could leave without, um, without penalty, without having to sit out, uh, without restriction. That's on their minds. Also on their minds is this academic bar you would have to meet that I think was in the release was 3.0. I think that might be the most contentious issue of the entire thing because I've talked to people on the inside or working on this. And it's like, if you're going to, first of all, I think it opens up the legal liability. You know, why is, why is it 3.0? Why is it not, you know, what it takes to be eligible at that individual school for any Or what it depends on what kind of major somebody is in also. Absolutely. I was just going to mention that 3.0 at Stanford is different than 3.0 at, at, uh, at Marshall. I mean, let's throw that out there. And I think that's a huge contentious point. If you try to put an academic bar in there, I do know this is going to happen. There's a separate, separate piece of legislation that is almost a slam dunk at this point. It's going to go from a, from a permission model to a notification model for the athletes. In other words, players are just going to tell the coach, you know, I'm leaving. There will be a process, how they notify them. And the, the concept of blocking by schools and coaches will end, which I think is very, very Dennis, when I, I, you know, you and I have talked about this, uh, you know, offline, and then mm-hmm. I, I talked to somebody at the NCA, and they said technically it's not at the proposal stage yet. It's really at what they no, deem as an I, no. I, idea. Um, but they said it could go fast. I think one thing that was made clear to me was this is not going to get grandfathered in where, you know, until something happens, it has to be after. So while they want to do it, you know, they, 
it's not going to have any impact if they pass it in June versus if they pass it in October. No, no, I think what you're saying, it's not going to be retroactive. It's not going to affect Shea Patterson. You know, if it starts this year, we'll likely start August 1st and and it will, uh, when it'll start August 1st, you know, the clock will start ticking from then. It'll affect no one that we are talking about now. So yeah, I think that, yeah, yes, that's true. Not to go too heavy, uh, but this is this story is now, as we're taping this Wednesday morning, as we reported at SI and some other places, I think are, are pursuing it. This, there's a lawsuit now that is involved in that Ole Miss case, Rebel Rags, which is a, yeah. an Oxford, Mississippi-based store, had a lawsuit that they were, because their owner was named in the, in the NCAA's case against Ole Miss, now that lawsuit from the lawyer I spoke to yesterday, representative for Rebel Rags, has just filed, and it is included Dan Mullen, Scott Strickland, the NCA investigator, and the NCA itself. The lawyer told me that they feel like they have very good proof that Dan Mullen and Scott Strickland, who obviously are now at, at Florida after mm-hmm. working at Mississippi State, uh, directed those statements from those players. They said it's right in the transcripts. Any idea, and, and for our listeners, they can check out uh, Michael McCann, who does some really upper-level work because he's an attorney, will uh, have an analysis of this case on SI.com probably by the time this goes up. But what what do you read on this where, um, no matter what you are, if you're a head coach and you're an AD, you do not want to be mentioned in, in lawsuits, especially one as contentious as this one has already gotten. No, and I'm not a legal expert like Michael McCann, but I think it's very interesting that part of the lawsuit, I think, is defamation. It that's is. That's a whole other area. It yeah, is. Yeah, that's a whole other area where you're, you're, you know, you know, you're having to prove malice and false and misleading. I mean, I, Bruce, you know this. There's a big case going to trial this year where the former running backs coach at USC, Todd McNair, sued the NCAA for defamation, not. Not not that he did or didn't do, you know, something in the report from 2010, but the, but they defamed him, and it's a it's a very nuanced story, and I won't go into the details. But but his lawyers think they have a heck of a case that the, that the NCAA, because of the things they said about him, which is what we're talking about in this this whole Miss case, you know, caused him not to, not to be able to work, uh, defamed him. He hasn't had any meaningful employment, at least in college football, since 2010. And I guess that's a loose, loosely uh, tied to this. But, yeah, it's, it's a different world when I think it, when it's defamation. Yeah, and this is committed acts to aid and abet libel, slander, and defamation. Mm-hmm. So this um, isn't exactly unprecedented. All of us are old enough to remember that Alabama Albert Means case that went on forever and ever. Yeah. And there were assistant coaches that were filing – defamation suits, you know, and trying to subpoena Phil Fulmer years after the fact. I don't even, it went on so long, I can't remember now if they actually won anything. But in general, you know, the NCAA's enforcement model is already so flawed and so criticized. You know, we saw the president of Notre Dame come out and criticize it last week. If they were to lose these kind of lawsuits, wouldn't that make it almost impossible for them to do what they do if, uh, outside courts, the legal system is saying, I mean, I mean, how, how do you, how do you bring down quote unquote, what's the word like NCA violators? If you can't say anything bad about them. 
Yeah, I, you brought up, and I was going to bring up the Father Jenkins letter from Notre Dame last week. I, I think that, I think that signaled an eventual alteration or end to enforcement as we know it, because they had a heck of a case. I'm not going to dispute there was academic misconduct at Notre Dame, but they were docked, you know, these these vacated wins, same as Louisville. And if you don't think that means anything, ask Notre Dame, Louisville, Penn State, or, you know, or USC or some of these other schools who who had to endure these vacation of wins. And so they appealed and the appeal was turned down. And, and Father Jenkins basically said, he's the president of Notre Dame, basically said, well, we have, unlike a lot of schools, we have an honor code. We have a judici- you know, we have a court that decides these things and penalize these people. It was a student trainer who gave uh, academic help to a few players. And, and so you're still knocking us. I mean, for doing, you know, in other words, Notre Dame walks the walk, you know, at, at least on the surface, they blend athletics and academics. And I wrote at the time, if, if, if they've lost Notre Dame, then they've lost a lot of their standing in the, in the academic and athletic community, the, the enforcement staff. And, and look, who knows what they end up doing at Michigan State, though they think they've overreached there. So I, I, I think when, they, when, that ha- when that happens, Notre Dame is basically sending the message that you all can do whatever you want in the future, but if you continue down this track, Notre Dame's not going to be a part of it because they do have leverage to break away, and they do have leverage to take schools with them that want to govern themselves in a more fair way. Well, I know a bunch of USC folks, and I'm not saying the people who are like under Len Swan, but you know USC fans, yeah. boosters, who were hoping they would have taken this tact. You know, it was ironic because obviously Notre Dame is a huge oh, yeah. rival, hated rival. Yet a yeah. lot of USC people loathe Notre Dame, especially because of the Missy Convoy connection to their own uh, NCA investigation with the Reggie Bush case, and yet they're saying we didn't do anything. You know. Afterwards, we just kind of rolled over and and just kind of took the NCA's beating, and we're not aggressive about it. They're not happy about. There's a lot of frustration about how their deal is with the Pac-12 setup, and it's not structured. They look at maybe a Texas situation, what they have the Big 12 and, and an NVSI, and now what you're seeing Notre Dame is 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 pushing back. And I think there's a lot of USC people going. It would, it would be nice if we if we followed suit, and I think they would probably have a little more of a uh, a little more interest if Notre Dame was going to lead the way of seeing, hey, what would an alternative be? That Notre Dame letter struck me as a great example of just what a terrible message and precedent they set when they punted on the UNC case, right? So many people right. in college athletics, as the NCAA gets criticized and criticized, will always defend it as, well, we're about more than athletics, we're about academics. And here you had the worst academic fraud case in recent history and they UNC's lawyers convinced them that they didn't have any jurisdiction in it and they punted on it and now here's Notre Dame who you know a few players got cheated or got help on a paper and they're having to lose you know two years of wins including their best season in recent memory mm-hmm. and North Carolina gets away scot-free like that if I'm any other school in the NCAA that faces any sort of um, similar issues I'm going to say, how is that fair? How is it fair that you're going to punish us, but you didn't punish North Carolina? Yeah. After I, after I wrote the Father Jenkins piece in which the lead was the NCAA just lost Notre Dame, 
for all the reasons I just mentioned. I recalled a, a column I wrote two or three years ago uh, with Jack Swarbrick, BD, who came out of nowhere and said, I think in the future we're going to have two divisions, uh, those that adhere to a strict academic model and those who don't. And I, I, I actually had a, uh, a graphic within the story of, of my doing of how that would look. You know, here are the number of schools that would play in that division, um, and here are those who don't. Uh, whether they're playing for the same thing or not, or the money is the same is a different discussion. But he had, he had just explained three years ago what Father Jenkins was alluding to between the lines last week. That you all, you all can do whatever you want, but we're we're gonna you know we're gonna uphold this this academic model that the NCA purports to support, and really doesn't all the time. Guys, how what percentage of there's 130 uh, F BS programs, what percentage, and I don't know what, I don't remember the, the sidebar you had in your story, Dennis, from a couple of years ago, but what percentage of those 130 would fit in that subscribes to the academic model in what you're talking about? And the other one is what I feel like is major college football. Yeah, it was out of the 130. I remember there were more in the academic model than the other one. In other words, maybe. Really? Oh, yeah, there were that that I, I shouldn't say strict academic model, but those schools that w- would want to be in that space. You know, we want to be with Notre Dame. We want to be with with USC. I think you'd put them in there. You know, some the, the Big Ten schools, I think, would would want to be in that space. Maybe about 70 wow. to, to 60 or 55 at that point. Stu, what would you so have guessed? What percentage? Off of my head. Not 70%. No, but 70, yeah, so that's over 50%, though. 70 is whatever, 55%. I'm confused by the question. Can you repeat it? Like, (laughs) like, as as Dennis talked about with, like, subscribing to what it sees as Notre Dame's academic model or whatever, what you would say at, at Stanford or Duke or certainly the academies, I feel like that number, as I, you know, in my head, maybe as I'm defining it, would be under 20%. Yeah, I think it's pretty low. I mean, it, you know, I, you remember the famous Jim Delaney quote a few years ago, I think maybe during the Ed O'Bannon suit, when they said, you know, what would happen if they started paying the players? And he said, well, we dropped down to Division three, And, yeah, you know, yeah. no, nobody buys that. Ohio State is not going to drop down to Division three. <laughs> they have a big, powerful football program that generates... I don't know, $100 million, whatever the figure may be, you know, they're not going to drop down to Division Three. So if, if push came to shove, how many schools would actually, you know, put academics, as much as they talk about how many schools would actually put academics ahead of athletics, I think it's just that small group Bruce was just referring to, right? Primarily private yeah. schools that some of them are more successful at football than others, but for the most part, we know that, you know, they're not going to just completely sell their souls. Dennis, let me, here's yeah, where I, I, I here's, take it. Here's yeah. my disconnect on that. And we could be talking, I think we're probably in our minds talking about two different things, but here's my kind of baseline definition. And I, I w- won't say who this player is. It, it's, you know, it's a dated mm-hmm. example. It's 10 plus years ago. But, you know, when he told me I wanted to major in this at this school because they're really good and this is a field I'm interested in, the coaches said, no, you should major in this because. You know, basically, it's a more manageable ma- major for you to deal with all the stuff we're going to put on your plate as a major college football player. 
And that school, I would think that would, would in, from what you're talking about, would be one of your, one of the schools you'd put in that academic model. And that's why in my head, and of course it's anecdotal, but that's why I would say I don't see them in that model. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that goes no, on I, at a lot of yeah. places. And I feel like it goes on in a lot of places that are, that, you know, across, it's not to say those schools aren't really good schools, but you know, for, for the regular student experience. But I just feel like when it comes to football, that is elevated in a way that it's probably more so to the, to the model than maybe the presidents of those schools would, would like to admit. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that goes on everywhere, except maybe it probably goes on in Notre Dame, frankly, and, and maybe even Duke. I don't know. Because, because I think that's a huge problem. And you, you'd have to walk the walk again and say, you can take, you know, you can, unlike uh, Josh Rosen, who was so mad last year in the off season when he had a elective or some sort of required course for his finance degree, cut in 30 minutes to practice in spring practice, and he was told he couldn't take it then, you know, that wouldn't be an issue. So, no, you're right. All right, let's wrap up on a lighter note. We've discussed a lot of facts on this podcast. Tim Brewster, Texas A&M assistant, has his own definition of facts. <laughs> He, uh, he's been catching flack for some tweets he sent the other night. And one of them was, you know, he's, he's trying to talk to recruits. To say that the Big 12 is even on the same planet with the SEC is straight crazy. The elite players in Texas totally understand. And um, some others, including Mike Gun- Kale Gundy at Oklahoma State, and then Mike Gundy retweeted it, were quick to find a tweet of his from just last year when he was still at Florida State with Jimbo Fisher that said... Jimbo is dead right. The ACC is the best football conference in the nation. Hashtag facts. What do we make of this? <laughs> Twitter makes another example of Twitter making cowards of us all. Eventually, <laughs> Twitter gets a, gets all of us at some point. <laughs> uh, it's Brewster just being a nut. Um, by the way, uh, I don't think A&M got all the elite prospects in Texas, given that they had 19 days to recruit before the first signing days. So I don't know what he's. They made a heck of a rally at the end, and they look good for next year, but I, I wouldn't put A&M right now as wrapping up the state of Texas. That's for darn sure. Yeah, I think it makes it fun in the off season. You know, look, Tim Brewster yeah. has been pretty good at pushing buttons on Twitter. One thing that I think is, uh, is kind of interesting about all this is Tim Brewster works for Jimbo Fisher. As I, I'm pretty sure Jimbo does not want his assistants talking to the media, and a lot of the coaches... No. who maybe come from this Belichick tree, subscribe to that model. And so the thinking is, you know, they only want one voice, and yet, and obviously this plays into, this is recruiting, so it's a different part. But a lot of times you would get these assistant coaches, you know, taking a much different tone on social media than I think their head coaches would ever probably feel, you know, would ever do in front of a podium. And so you get kind of an additional voice or additional tone to it. And I think that's what you're seeing here. Yeah, and it... It, it doesn't hurt Texas A&M at all. I don't. I don't think to say, "Hey, we're in the SEC and it's great." I think it hurts. It's just Tim Tim Brewster being being wacky. I think double edged sword for coaches like Jimbo. They don't want the assistant speaking publicly, but they can't tell them to right. stay off Twitter because they have to be on Twitter for recruiting. Right. That's one of the main ways they communicate with their recruits. So I don't know. It's fun. Dead of off season. I saw that. Um, you know. It was yet another Texas A&M, Texas. Since they won't play each other, we have to. the only way we get to experience that rivalry is through um, things like um, Sam Ellinger, the Texas quarterback, 
making fun of him. He tagged Tua and said, hey, you know, basically, this guy's taking credit for you because clearly A&M hasn't contributed to that SEC being the greatest <laughs> conference lately. So uh, all in good fun in the offseason. But I think we hit on some important issues today that are going on in, in college sports right now. Very interested to see. I mean, first of all, Michigan fans, most of all, are interested to see what happens with Shea Patterson, interested to see what happens with the Big 12 transfer proposal. And the NCAA attendance question is one that I think a lot of people are going to have to spend a lot of time here in the offseason doing some soul searching and figuring out, is it is it even reversible? I mean, figuring out how to reverse it, but is it is it reversible or is this just the way that live sporting events are going to go as we, as we get further and further away from the good old days, if you will, or every game wasn't yeah. on television. Yeah, I, I was just on that real quick. I, I was told by one person that, or reminded by one person that college athletics move at a glacial pace to begin with, and that that the you know Major League Baseball and the NFL are way to way ahead of of colleges in this trend to you know downsize stadium, create stadiums, create a premium ticket, and enhance the experience. Experience. In other words, the closer you make the game day experience to sitting in that Barker lounge or being able to look at your phone and tablet and TV at the same time, the quicker you retain these people. And, it, and it's happening. I mean, you see it. You guys know. You, we've all been to Jerry World and we've been to uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yeah, those but, are, those but, are the absolute top examples. Yeah, Right, but the problem is the, the pro teams can tear down a stadium every 20 years and build a new one. Uh, some of these college that, football stadiums yeah. are 100 years old, and, and let's be honest, they're not going to, you know, Michigan's not going to level the big house and build a no. new stadium in uh, 20 miles away, right? So you have to deal with... There's 60,000 seats. Yeah, you got to deal with the constraints of what you have. So uh, that is a, you know, I agree with you, Dennis, like in an ideal world, they would refurbish all these stadiums and put in amazing concessions and all that stuff, but I don't know how practical that is and, you know stadiums that have been that were built in 1927 or, or 1943 yeah or whatever, it, it's a happening a little bit arizona's yeah arizona state's doing it uh kansas has plans on the board to do it although you know you, you need to create something to get people to watch kansas football there but um it, there's a few doing it but again yeah most of these big time stadiums were built during the depression you can't just you know downsize them yeah, I feel like this is going to be a uh, an ongoing story, especially as our audiences all care, seem to care more about ratings and these kinds of things as it's like some yeah. kind of measuring stick. And so it becomes a little subplot to everything, enter, everything that has some level of entertainment value. Uh, Dennis, we appreciate your tireless work. Uh, as I've told many people, you're the... I worked in tw- in the business for 20 plus years, and I now worked at a bunch of different places. You are the hardest working guy I've ever worked with, so uh, you've shown that you've carried that banner well in the last couple of weeks, doing a lot of stories that all of your colleagues have had to have had to chase. So, thanks for joining us on the Audible today, and I'm sure we will uh, talk to you soon. It's a pleasure, and, and thanks for the kind words, and uh, enjoy being with you guys. Thanks, thanks, Dennis. All right, let's hit the mailbag, Bruce. As always, you guys out there listening can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Eric Horton in Denton, Texas says, Going into the 2018 season, who are names of some group of five coaches we should be keeping an eye on to make a move up the career ladder? What about 
FCS coaches. Who is this year's Tom Herman or Scott Frost? Well, those guys wouldn't be FCS coaches, though. No, but let's start with group of five. I don't even know if we're... Okay. Let's go to group of five. Okay, so you threw me for a little bit. Okay, so group of five-wise... I'm going to say Neil Brown. Yeah, I mean, look, he he had got some looks from a couple of places. I think that's that's certainly a good one. A name I've been pretty high on for a while, Jason Candle from Toledo. Uh, I would put Scott Satterfield from Appalachian State up there. I mean, to me, those guys are... Or certainly would should be I think should be high on the list, and I could see, you know, it's last year we had heavy SEC job openings, and I think that kind of tilted the tilted the field for what people were were looking there. But I certainly would put those guys high on the list as FCS. I would throw in uh, Mike Houston from James Madison. There's a coach I've heard a lot of good things about who's actually at Southern Utah, Demario Warren. He's he's in his early 30s. But his, he's created a pretty big splash and done a nice job at Southern Utah. I would keep an eye on him. Maybe not for next year, but that's one to put on people's radar. Is the path now – I feel like schools are pretty – at least Power 5 schools are very reluctant to do what Ohio State did once upon a time and promote Jim Trestle from – hire Jim Trestle from Youngstown State. I mean is the path now to do what uh, – Joe Moorhead did. Joe Moorhead did, what Bo Baldwin did. You know, go from being an FCS head coach to a Power Five offensive coordinator. I mean, it worked for for Joe Moorhead. I mean, look, I think Joe Moorhead's one of the smartest people in college football. Just when you talk to him, you know he has a lot of perspective and he's very intelligent. And he gambled that, hey, I'm going to go go make this move, and he bet on himself to take the Penn State job. And it, it wasn't like he was a hot name then. And he had done really well at Fordham. I mean, they were awful when he got there. And he turned them into a conference champ, and he should have been—he should have been the guy UConn probably should have hired before. So we'll see if he obviously has success at Mississippi State. There's a copycat element of that. Bo Baldwin, you know, was up for some jobs. He was up for Cal. He was briefly mentioned, you know, certainly for—I'm sorry—he was up for Oregon State, and I think some people thought he had a shot at Arizona. But we'll see if he can get a job out of there. But that's certainly a path that that people think is more viable now because you're more on people's radar. And he kind of, in the case of Moorhead, he kind of surveyed the landscape and thought that was his best uh, option. Uh, let's answer this question from London. It's from Simon. Student Bruce, I'm, ex- I'm an exiled Trojan fan in London, although I grew up here. But I was under the impression that Lynn Swan was giving himself some flexibility by allowing Coach Helton's contract to run down and give no large extensions to his staff. And then, out of the blue... A big multi-year extension. Is the timing with the signing day window coincidence? Surely you give your head coach an extension well before the day before National Signing Day. Do you think this is the move you would make in Lynn Swan's position? Keep up the good work on the pod. So after we received this email, Lynn Swan did a pretty extensive Q&A with the Orange County Register. And it was really the first time I've – he's not somebody who's out in the media a lot. So I feel like this is the first time I really ever heard him talk in any detail about coach helton and the state of the program and it was interesting because there was it was, it was kind of it swung both ways you know on the one hand he was saying yeah you know it's important it was important to give him the extension you don't you don't ever be have less than four years left on a contract you know expressing confidence in him but then on the same token he was pretty blunt about yeah you know we we measure ourselves by national championships and we were not national championship caliber team last year joey coffin the reporter asked him there was some, I didn't hear a lot of this, but some USC fans complaining that they weren't taken more seriously by the 
committee as a Pac-12 champion, and he was like, "We we shouldn't have been. We weren't we weren't a national championship caliber team." So you know he's optimistic for next season. He was saying, you know, he thinks they'll have the best talent and depth returning that they have since the sanctions, which obviously means he's expecting big things from Clay Helton. But I I was left with it confused. Is he confident in Clay Helton or is he not? Well, let's let's point out some key things here. USC is a private school. What that what that extension is, the money, the only way you find out is if you talk to either, you know, Lynn Swan or or Clay Helton or his agent. We were not gonna know how much this was. I mean, my hunch is they extended the length. The money is not significantly additional. You know, I think this my read is this was for cosmetic purposes. It was done before signing day to counter any people saying Clay Helton's not going to be there two years from now. Uh, I think that people genuinely like Clay Helton around USC. His team really likes him, and 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 I think he, by all accounts he's a really good man, and they want to see him do well. If he doesn't do well and they end up at 8-4 and four or 7-5, and five, there will be increasing pressure there. I mean, this is a team that just obviously won the Pac-12, and the year before that they won the Rose Bowl. I mean, that's pretty good in his first two years. But still, I think there's a limited buy-in when it comes to that. So I don't think this is not a Jimbo Fisher, hey, we're paying you $75 million guaranteed kind of situation. I think it's really the opposite of that. And like I said, I think this is more for cosmetic purposes. It is kind of fascinating that the guy could go win the Rose Bowl his first season, win the Pac-12 his second season, and there is still a sizable contingent of USC fans that have just no confidence in him. And, and especially with Chip Kelly coming in at UCLA, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? So we'll see. Well, Stu, they, I mean, they got blown out by Notre Dame this year. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they didn't, they got blown out by Alabama. I think they feel like, yeah, that we did those things. There's still a, a pretty sizable gap. And as Lillian Swan said in that, in that Joey Kaufman Q&A, there's still a pretty sizable gap between them and where they expect to be. And as he said, there's no sanctions anymore. This yep. is like, you know it's it's games on and let's see what's going on with us we're still even though there have been several coaching changes since Pete carroll we're still close enough to the Pete carroll era that i feel like all usc coaches are going to be measured against him and that was such a phenomenal run and one thing that you came to expect under Pete carroll is when they had the big non-conference games at ohio state or auburn or you name it they they won those games and oftentimes dominated those games and it's been the exact opposite. Clay Helton has done very, very well in the Pac-12, obviously, but get blown out by Notre Dame, get blown out by Alabama, get blown out at least on the scoreboard against Ohio State and the Cotton Bowl, and those are the programs that USC thinks they should be comparable to. You know, that's who they fashion themselves to be. So I think that's a big part of it as well. From Shamil Owens, hey Stu and Bruce, you guys commented on programs who were successful, successful in adding premier assistants and position coaches to their staff, with the Buckeyes being one of them. But can you comment on what I think is the biggest loss in them, which is Kerry Coombs, arguably the best uh, DB coach in college football, leaving to join Mike Rabel with the Tennessee Titans? While retaining Ryan Day was significant, I believe his departure will have an immediate impact. Uh, you know, he's, he was the cornerbacks coach. So I think, you know, clearly he had a good run in the, certainly in the last few years of developing players. I think Ohio state's going to be going to be just fine. You know, they have three guys on their staff now who were defensive coordinators last year, Greg Schiano, Tavor Johnson will come in and work with work back where Kerry Combs did. He had used to, he used to coach at Ohio state and obviously Alex Grinch from, from Washington state who work with the DVs. 
I mean, to me, Alex Grinch going back there, if you're telling me Alex Grinch versus Kerry Combs, I think Ohio State got better there. And that's not a knock on Kerry Combs. I just think if you look at what they added in addition to that, you know, they're, they're paying a lot of money on that staff as those numbers came out. And I think it was key for them to retain Ryan Day, especially with a new with a new quarterback situation that they're going to, you know, JT Barrett's gone. He's been there forever. He's gone. Now we're going to see what they're doing moving forward. And if, if I'm an Ohio State fan, I'm very relieved that Ryan Day passed up the chance to go be the offensive coordinator for an NFL job with the Tennessee Titans. Yeah, I mean, he now carries that you got to do these things to, to when there's a situation like that. But he now carries the offensive coordinator title over Kevin Wilson, who was the high-profile addition of those two last year. It is. It's a it's a rich getting richer situation, both with Ohio State and. Why don't you talk a little bit about the news you reported this week at Alabama? Yeah. So Alabama, Nick Saban, Nick Saban's had a lot of turnover on his staff. Carl Dunbar, who'd worked with Saban a bunch, he moved on to the NFL, and Saban. I don't want to say he necessarily upgraded as a knock on Carl Dunbar, but one of the four or five most respected. D-line coaches in the country is Craig Kuligowski. He spent 15 years at Mizzou, did a really good job there. Last two years at Miami, did a very good job there. And he actually played for Saban back when they were both at Toledo, whatever it was, 30 years ago. This is a good addition. I think it's just one of many really, really good hires that Saban has made as he's had to replace some guys. And, you know, he had good players at Miami, certainly developed good players at Mizzou. He, I don't think he's ever had the level of talent to work with that he's going to have now in Tuscaloosa. Finally, Justin from Iowa says, Bruce and Stu, with Brian Ferentz and Sean Snyder both working at replacing their dads at Power 5 jobs at the same time, it seems like nepotism may be alive and well, with neither fan base totally sold on the idea from what I've read. Is there any historical precedent for the success of a coaching dynasty in the long run? at the same school. <laughs> this is going to be a bizarre reference, but when I read this, the first one I thought of was the Myers at DePaul basketball. Uh, wow. Ray Meyer sure and then yeah. Joey, and Joey Meyer. Yeah. But Joey had some success early on and then ended up, you know, getting run out of town. And frankly, DePaul has never, in basketball has never recovered. Yeah, I think you see a lot of times where guys with family connections end up on staffs. I can't really speak to Sean Snyder. I've been around Brian Ferentz a decent amount now, having done some Iowa games. And he, you know, he's a guy who worked, uh, has some the Patriot ties under Bill O'Brien and everything. He's a really sharp guy when you talk to him. He's young, though. I mean, he's, I think last year, you know, was his first year really running the show. And they had some growing pains. Obviously, they had, you know, a great game against, against Ohio State and some others that weren't so great. But I would say give him a chance on it. I mean, you know, just again from for just from being around him a little bit, he's he's young, but I think he's pretty sharp. And they have a really really underrated, talented young quarterback in Nate Stanley. He was a sophomore last year. I'm curious to see what you know. Maybe not this year, but maybe by 2019, what Iowa what Iowa will be on offense. I think that uh, I wouldn't kind of write him off just because hey, it's just a nepotism thing. Um, I th- I. I think he's going to be. A, I think he's going to do really good, really, really well for Iowa, just because of uh, all that he's kind of been around in his his time. And I think that's important for a lot of coaches is 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 what you're exposed to. I mean, you know, you think about it. 
Um, you know, the example that I thought of when I saw this was Charlie Weiss Jr. You know, and he's 24 years old now. I've talked to multiple people who worked with him in Alabama who spoke really highly of him. Now he's never run a room. You know, he's never really you know been the the voice in a room. He's he's been there on the on the preparation side and the game planning side. And we're going to find out more. Obviously, Lane's going to be very, very involved, as he was last year when you know he, he was seemed like he was really running the offense still with Kendall Bryles' input. But that you know, there's there there are so many examples of this. We all kind of go to different different places when we see this. I didn't, I never thought of the the, the DePaul example, but that's a good uh, that's a good poll you had. And by the way, I have another college basketball example for you. And in fact, from a program that I believe was in the same conference with them for a little bit. UAB, Gene Bartow founded the program, had a great run, and then handed it over to Murray Bartow, who, let's see here, went to the NCAA once and then NIT a couple times and then was... 13 and 17 in his last year. So where's your head? Where's your head at? Where you're pulling out Murray Bartow and <laughs> Joey Meyer. Where did these come from? Um, well, I think they come from my growing up in Cincinnati and the old great Midwest conference where UC was in the same conference with those schools. But, uh, also, you know, it's almost March, Bruce. It's almost that time. Okay. I don't know what that means to, but <laughs> college basketball is starting to get on yeah, the brain a little bit, but uh. But, you know, happy to – we had plenty to talk about in the football world this week. Also, we should have mentioned off the top, sorry for the uh, – coming on late a little bit later this week, the President's Day holiday and childcare and whatnot just threw off our schedule a little bit. But uh, hopefully we'll be back on our normal schedule next week. We'll see you next time. Roll the credits. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible, and you'll get 20% off of an annual subscription. And if you aren't following us on Twitter already, you can do so. Bruce is Bruce Feldman, CFB. And Stu is S.L. Mandel. See you next time. Come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. We'll talk about it for years. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 